So, Dan. Hey, Isabel. Hey. So this week we're talking about the ER with Dr. Haboosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Most people I know have been to an ER, I would say. Well, you hear all these things about the emergency room, right? Like there's these crazy wait times and it's super expensive. But so many people get care from there, right? Like right. not going to their primary care doctor and going to the emergency room instead. Right, exactly. I feel like that first time you go to the emergency room, you aren't thinking about cost. But then that second time, you really begin to think about, what is this going to cost me? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a pretty rough experience for patients. As, as a medical student, did you ever end up rotating through the emergency room? Yeah, I did. I spent a month in the emergency room as a medical student um, at a few different hospitals in New York City. And I was struck by the diversity of the ailments that came into the emergency room, along with uh, the people of New York City all coming in and congregating in this one place. But it kind of ran the gamut from people who really just needed a place to take a shower to people who were in cardiac arrest. Yeah. And folks that had a cold, but the doctor's office wasn't open, so they didn't have anywhere else to go. Exactly. Yeah, I'm really curious to talk to Dr. Habush about the American Emergency Room, which in some ways has always felt like the most democratic place in the hospital, right? It's anyone can go there and can be seen. Yeah, and you know we're legally obligated to provide care in the emergency room. We can't turn folks away. And I think that creates a pretty interesting dynamic. Yes. And also, uh, he's the founder of MD Calc, which probably every medical student has on their phone. Yeah, and resident too. And uh, if, if you're not, you probably should add it. It's an enormously useful resource. Yeah. And just a shout out, we are in no way financially sponsored by <laughs> MDL. But if they want to sponsor us, hey. We're not against it. <laughs> we love the product. By clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Your well-rounded hosts are Dan Arteaga and Isabel Rosenthal, two MD-MBAs in their first year of residency. This episode takes a look at health insurance in the American ER. Dan and Isabel will be talking with Dr. Joseph Habush, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at NYU and founder and CEO of MD Calc. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Isabel, I'm, I'm really, really excited to be talking to our guest today. We're, we're on the line with Dr. Habush, Dr. Joe Habush. Dr. Habush, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys, so much for having me. I think it is really amazing what you guys have been putting together here. It's something that we've needed in medicine. God, since, since before I was in med school, I thought I wish I had a better education in the bigger picture of healthcare, um, how the finances work, and I had to sort of try to figure it out on my own. So thank you for everything you're doing here. And thank you for providing us with a resource that we all use every day um, on the wards. <laughs> um, we are not financially sponsored by MD Calc, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> use it all the time. Uh, thank you. And we're really excited to talk to you about the ER. I think for everyone that we talk to who's not in medicine, the question we get asked the most is, what is the emergency room like? And I think there still remains all this sort of mystery around the ER. And uh, we're really excited to talk about this topic. Oh, for sure. And, you know, the ER, it's exciting. It's unpredictable. It's been 
glorified and lionized by TV and movies. And yet it's this young field. 30 years ago, doctors trained in other fields were sent to the ER to work without a set of knowledge on how to handle these patients. So it's, um, it's a really young field too. And we're, we're still figuring out the best way to handle things, the best way to approach patients, et cetera. So um, for sure, a very exciting place to be and ex- very exciting time to be in the ER because it's so new. Uh, speaking of patients, maybe we can just give you a patient and then we can walk through what that patient's journey might be. Does that sound good to you? That sounds great to me. Okay, so uh, we have our patient for tonight. It's going to be a gentleman with a broken leg. Do you play any sports by chance? I did when I was younger. I played football before I, everyone was much bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our patient, our patient breaks his leg playing football, um, <laughs> and uh, you know he's uh, he calls nine one one. He's 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 scared. He's in pain. Um, let's say the ambulance shows up. Uh, What does the process look like um, for for somebody in this situation? Great. So they're calling the ambulance. And so the ambulance um, shows up fairly quickly. We have a really very robust ambulance system here in New York City. And there are specific rules that the ambulance has when they bring the patient to the ER. And if they um, have a certain level of emergency, they need to be brought to the closest emergency department that can handle that type of emergency. So if there's a suspicion there's a stroke, they need to go to a stroke center. If there's a suspicion that, you know, if the patient has chest pain and you're worried about a heart attack, um, you need to go to a hospital that can handle that. So to some extent, there are specific rules where the ambulance drivers have to bring the patient to a specific ER. And there's other wise or some flexibility um, depending on how severe it is and on patient preference on where they can go but they will be brought to an ER. Our patient with the broken leg, he has seen the name NYU in the news and asked the ambulance to bring him to NYU. Will the ambulance drivers oblige him and take him to NYU or it depends on what's available? You know, the correct answer in medicine, I remember one of my mentors telling me is always, it depends. (laughs) And it depends here based on how sick they are. Um, if they're not as critically sick, and if the hospital that they're requesting to go to is, um, you know, can handle their type of emergency, then then they often can go there. Perfect. So so let's just say for uh, for the sake of this patient, a gentleman with a broken leg, he's brought to NYU uh, by ambulance. Let's say he's on a stretcher and uh, taken in the emergency room. Who's the first person that he talks to um, when he gets there? Yeah. So there are. Um, what we call the triage area of the emergency department. And there's often two different triage areas, one for walk-ins and one for um, the ambulances, right? So both at NYU and at, um, at we, I also work at Bellevue, which is a big public hospital in New York City. And, but Bellevue pays NYU to provide the doctor. So I get, I get to work at both. Um, they, they will come in and, and be seen by a triage nurse in one of these areas. And that triage nurse will take a quick story take a set of vital signs, and assign a level of severity to that patient. And based on that level of severity, the patient will be seen sooner or later by the physicians. At what point do we get this patient's billing information? Is it the second they walk in the door, Dr. Habush? That's a great question. You know, the emergency department's a unique place where you when you're sick and you go to the emergency department, you, it's hard for you to choose based on your insurance 
where to go. And sometimes you might get injured and you just get brought there. You don't have much choice. And so the rules around when we treat patients and how we can charge for it can be very different. And one of those differences is that there's a law that um, in the United States we have called the EMTALA law. And that law um, requires that all patients that show up to the emergency department, regardless of what kind of insurance they may or may not have, need to receive a medical screening exam from a physician. And if they're unstable, we need to stabilize them. And at that point, we've met EMTALA. So this is the reason why nobody can be turned away from, from emergency care in the United States. That's correct. You know, one example of um, care that we have to provide to everyone, it's not free care. I think some people assume um, it's, we provide that for free, and that's not the case. You have to provide it, but you're allowed to charge for it. And it, it's, you know, a classic example of an unfunded mandate. It's a, a law that the government made, but the government didn't say, if you take care, a doctor or a hospital system, if you take care of more uninsured patients and can never collect money from them, we're going to pay you more. It's just a requirement that's required of these hospitals, which sometimes create um, some perverse incentives for hospitals as well. And just to clarify for our listeners, uh, MTALA stands for the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And Isabel and I were talking earlier, this is the only place in the United States uh, where Americans are really guaranteed healthcare. It's in the emergency room. You're not guaranteed access to a primary care provider. You're not guaranteed access to surgery you might need, but you are guaranteed uh, access to the emergency room. I want to go back to our friend with the broken leg who is currently hanging out in the emergency room (laughs) waiting to be discharged. Once, you know, we did an x-ray, turns out uh, he is a minor fracture. Uh, What keeps him from kind of the point of diagnosis to being discharged? What are the hurdles to discharge at this point? After we've diagnosed it, the patient, we need to treat, treat them properly. So they may need a splint. They might need, depending on the fracture, we might need to call a specialist, orthopedic doctor, who might come and see the patient. So these are all processes that can take time in the emergency department. From showing up to being seen by triage, to being seen by the doctor, to getting your labs drawn, to getting your x-rays done, to getting an x-ray read, et cetera. All these things are just steps that take longer when the ER is busier. So all these things that you mentioned, they, they cost a little bit of money. And because it's the emergency room, I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's a lot of money. But uh, we want to throw you a curveball here. So uh, our patient, our football player with a broken leg, let's just say that he was uninsured all along. Is that information that you would have access to? And you know, if, if you did, how would it change this patient's experience in the emergency room? Yeah, so it is information we have access to. It's not information we typically look at. I often don't know what kind of insurance my patient has. It does sometimes affect how we treat the patient, but probably not in the way that most people would expect, at least not where I were. So maybe somewhat surprisingly, but once you think about it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. If I'm thinking about sending a patient home versus admitting a patient to the hospital, which is one of the most important and one of the most costly decisions as an emergency physician I have to make. I'm actually more likely to admit a patient to the hospital who does not have an insurance than one who does. Really? Because I'm most concerned about this patient in front of me. My goal in my job, number one, is always to do what's best for my patient. And if I know I can send a patient home and they have great access to a primary care doctor, 
or to uh, the orthopedic doctor in this case, or to a cardiologist that they have chest pain, then I might be more comfortable sending them home. Also weighing in on that decision, I have to see how reliable this patient is. Are they someone who will take instructions and return to me if they have other symptoms? Will they definitely follow up with their doctor? Or are they not as organized or not as reliable of a patient? And the less reliable they are, the less likely they are to follow up, the less likely they are to have access to follow up, the more likely I am to do what's best for that patient in front of me. And that might be to keep them in the hospital. And sometimes the hospital has to eat that. But my concern as an emergency doctor is to help that patient in front of me. Yeah, Dr. Bush, that really rings true to me. I spent a month in the emergency room as a medical student. Dan, have you ever done time in the ER? Um, <laughs> it sounds like a prison when you phrase it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Freudian slip. <laughs> That's amazing. I have not done time in the emergency room. I, I have been, actually, I did work at a student-run clinic where uh, a lot of times we would actually help uninsured patients um, deal with bills after they left the emergency room. This might be a good opportunity to return to our patient uh, with a broken leg. So uh, our patient, you know, has has got his splint. Maybe he got a little painkiller. Uh, he's discharged, and let's just say six weeks later, he gets you know he gets a bill for several thousand dollars. And this patient's uninsured, either can't pay or has no intention to pay, or both. Dr. Habush, what does this mean for the hospital that you have a patient that came in that received services and uh, those services aren't going to get reimbursed? This is such a complex answer. So first of all, we should talk about who the uninsured actually are. So who are these uninsured patients? And the majority of them are either folks who, who qualify for Medicaid and just haven't been on it yet. And we have social workers that help them get that. Or they're folks who are make a little bit too much money mm-hmm. to qualify for Medicaid. They might be the working poor, but their employer doesn't provide health care. Or they are a freelancer. Um, or they are um, an immigrant who doesn't yet qualify for insurance or an illegal immigrant. So th- there's a bunch of different buckets of um, what we call self-pay or, or um, uninsured. And a large portion of them might be um, homeless patients um, or disorganized patients who, you know, there's, there's not even an address you can really send a bill to. And the, and the hospital, um, even if they make a bill, they're not even chasing after that. <laughs> so who are the uninsured then who, who get stuck with a bill that they have to pay? And that's a very small percentage of patients. They are the, um, these other, um, you know, working poor but not poor enough for Medicaid or, um, you know, freelancers, folks in their 20s who live in New York and are artists, et cetera. There's um, maybe playing football, maybe playing football, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and these folks get stuck with bills sometimes. And uh, the interesting thing is they, the bill that gets sent to them has an insanely high number on it. And you'll have line items that can sound totally insane, right? So there's a facility charge of thousands of dollars. There's a physician charge that might itself just be for the, you know, 10 minutes you saw me, you'll get charged $1,500 will be the charge on the bill. And then they might even line item other things. This blood test was $100. This um, Tylenol pill was $25, et cetera. There are all these charges that, uh, that this particular patient can't pay for. Does the hospital just eat the cost? Does it go somewhere else? Well, let's look at the situation where the patients can pay when they do have insurance. 
And the bills they receive or, and their insurance company receives have these large numbers on it. But in the end, the insurance companies don't pay anywhere close to that. They play, pay a negotiated rate that they've preset between the medical center and that insurance company. And it's typically much, much lower than the charges that are on the bill, often somewhere between 15 and 30% of the actual charges. But so for the patient who is a working poor patient who receives this pill bill and then just like goes six months without paying it, am I going to be called by debt collectors? Is the hospital going to try and get me to pay this non-negotiated rate? What happens? And that's the interesting situation where this small percentage of patients do not have insurance, but have jobs, have money have good credit that can be ruined. They get stuck with these bills that get sent to them. And some medical centers have policies where they will lower the actual bill for that patient. And those very rare situations where they don't do that is when you have um, these articles and news stories come out. So essentially, there's 2% of patients, and I'm making up 2% for the moment here, Sure, get caught between this war, between payers and providers, where the hospital centers keep on charging a little bit more to squeeze a tiny bit more money out of the insurance companies, which are doing whatever they can to not pay those bills. And so what ends up happening is the charges on the bills become these large numbers that don't represent reality in any real way. And then once in a while, someone gets stuck with that bill. And I'm assuming the people who do like call the hospitals and negotiate down the rates they're paid, I mean, that must require some knowledge of the healthcare system. That's one of the most frustrating things is knowing who to call, understanding how you're getting all these different bills. You might get one bill from the hospital and a separate bill from the doctor that saw you or one time as a medical student, I had surgery and I made sure that the surgeon who saw me took my insurance and the hospital took insurance. And I didn't think to check if my anesthesiologist would take my insurance. <laughs> so this doctor I met for 10 seconds, he told me to count down backwards and I made it to from 10 to 6 and then I passed out and I never saw again. I got a large bill from and I had to, um, me and I was an MD, MBA student, I had to fight for a while to have that bill um, significantly reduced to the point where I could pay it. So for sure, it's, it's, it can be hard. And that was a situation where I did have insurance. And the, and the provider, they're out of network for my insurance. Well, thank you so much for walking us through the example. We've talked about a few topics that are extremely relevant for patients. I guess, how can we as interns, medical students, residents, uh, and the like, kind of think about these, these questions, think about these problems, and bring solutions kind of to our practice moving forward? Sure. I think it's really important to understand that finances are complex and try to un understand that complexity. You know, you guys, physicians, are some of the smartest folks out there. It, the understanding of finances is not nearly as challenging as the understanding of medicine. But there is some challenge to that. So if we're going to start having physicians understand the finances of healthcare more, we need to embrace that and, um, and really study it and see that the charge isn't necessarily what most folks pay, which is different than the cost, which is different than, and the variable cost is different than the fixed cost and all of these things. 
That I think is the first thing. And, and the, the second thing I'll, I'll tell you is no, no matter what you do in medicine, no matter who's paying, the, the answer always comes down to do what is best for that patient in front of you um, at the time you're seeing that patient. And that's, that's what we're all here for. The finances come way, way below that in priority. Uh, Dr. Habush, we couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Habush. Is that a wrap? I believe that's a wrap, Dan. It's a wrap. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. This was really so much fun. <laughs>